Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Anna Greenberg, the principal now of Greenberg Quinlan Rosner Research, and she is a, a pollster. She works in a wide range of sectors political sector, not profits, not for profits, academic sectors. She has uh, taught um, public open and survey research methods. Um, she was three years ago, she won Pollster of the Year. Uh, for her work particularly on the Bill de Blasio campaign for the Mayor of New York City. She got married this May, I noticed. Uh, And she's very much a leader in data analytics and micro-targeting. So I think that she's, and you know, the whole business of trying to to work out what role social media does play, and and I'm sort of obsessed with not overstating it, but not knowing it, but not getting you know, carried away because I find that I, I just do see some people sort of talking to themselves, I think, about it. But welcome. Uh, we Thank had you for got having to me. The, it's very nice to have you now here. Now, so we had got to that question of whether it was Hillary, whether it was Clinton, the word Clinton, or the fact that she was a woman, that she had a vagina effectively, that really had the bigger, the bigger proportional impact on that result, even though she got four million votes more. Now, you must have done a great deal of reflection being a good New York gal. What what do you think now, six months on? So why did she lose, or what role did sexism play in her losing? Oh, well, both questions. Very good question, uh, (laughs) precision. I suppose I'm more interested in what role did it play in her losing? Well, it's a really hard question to answer, and in some ways, people have, I think, been discouraged from looking at that question um, of sexism. And in fact, um, in some ways, Hillary Clinton herself has made it a little difficult to talk about because post-losing, on a number of occasions, she's blamed many, many, many things on sexism and has been somewhat unwilling to be reflective about the ways that her campaign or even herself as a candidate may have been problematic. So what it's meant is that now, if you say sexism, they're like, oh, you know, not that again. And so it's had this sort of chilling effect, and I've heard very little conversation about the role that sexism played in Hillary Clinton's loss, which, of course, it did play a role, but it's become this sort of trite, oh, you can't talk about sexism because she always talks about sexism. I can tell you from my own experience, she had problems um, with uh, around her gender um, on many levels. And one is just throughout the course of her career. I did an analysis of her favorability looking from when um, polls first started sort of taking the temperature on Hillary Clinton in 1991. And the American Enterprise Institute has a great database, public opinion database, and they have her ratings going all the way back to when she first came onto the scene. And you can pretty easily map her favorability sort of goes up when she's playing a dutiful woman help meet sort of role and goes down when she's challenging gender norms. And so when she says, um, you know, I didn't stay home and bake cookies during the first presidential campaign for her husband, her favorability goes down. And then she's wearing a pink sweater in the map room defending her husband when he, um, around Monica Lewinsky, her favorability goes up, you know, it goes down when, she, when she's in the primary with Barack Obama, but goes up when she's serving the president as Secretary of State. So she really has this very, and it really goes up and down and up and down. And it really maps pretty closely to when she's challenging uh, gender norms. So there's no question that her gender has affected how people see her and the role she's played over the course of her entire career. Um, What I saw during the campaign itself, I worked um, 
I'm a Democrat, um, and in um, political consulting uh, in the U.S., you either work for Democrats or you work for Republicans, and I mean, it would be a little weird to work for both sides, and most consult the, the few consultants who do it don't get a lot of business, because why would you want you know, either side to know each other's secrets. So I work for Democrats. And I worked for um, the labor unions, the For Your Future PAC and SEIU did a big independent expenditure on behalf of Hillary Clinton. And we did a lot of work looking at Democrats because the role that labor traditionally has played in elections is mobilization of kind of base progressive voters and sort of leaves the kind of persuasion of swing voters to the campaign itself. And so I did a lot of focus groups with Democrats and I was stunned at the things that people said, Democrats said about Hillary Clinton. Men in particular, um, though I certainly heard some from women, I heard things like, oh, I don't want to vote for a woman. I don't think a woman should be president. I don't think a woman can be president. I heard things like, well, at least she's married to Bill, so he'll help her. Um, people said things like, well, at least she has experience in the White House as if having been a senator or secretary of state, you know, is her, she was first lady in the White House, right? And while granted she, you know, did a lot on policy as first lady, she had done a lot since she'd been first lady. And I was a little, a little stunned um, to hear, again, progressive Democratic voters talk about um, her in that way. Some of it, to be honest with you, um, came out of the bruising primary with, with Bernie Sanders and the so-called Bernie bros. Um, and there was a lot of sexism around the ways that um, they communicated uh, about her. And when I did focus groups among younger men in particular, I, you heard a lot of sexist comments about her. And it was almost like, you know, they didn't want to vote for their grandma. Um, it, was, it was sort of that, that stark. Um, but they were prepared to vote for their grandpa, being but Bernie. Well, I think older women and older men are perceived differently. Uh, I just think age is not the same for men and women, and I think it, women, as women age, uh, they aren't seen as, as, I don't know, competent or as energetic. Um, think about it. I mean, in my view, there's no question that Hillary Clinton is more healthy than Donald Trump, but the conversations about her stamina um, and, you know, would she be able to hack it, and obviously the pneumonia thing didn't help, but no one talked about his stamina, even though he's a year older than her and seriously overweight and eats KFC on his airplane and says that if you exercise, it drains your energy, it's bad for you to exercise. So the idea that, you know, her stamina was an issue, and I think that's directly related to her gender. Um, again, there's, there's many other layers of the onion so, we so could peel here, but it's, there's no question it was a part of how people saw her. Can you imagine another person whose name isn't Clinton, a woman, being nominated in the next, the next time round or the time after that by either side? Absolutely. I, I see. Yes, absolutely. I don't... I think that Which Hillary, would undermine the, the, the sexism. No, argument. not necessarily. I mean, she... As a... I think people who are pioneers... When you think about Eleanor Roosevelt and the role that she played in the White House uh, when FDR was president, she was constantly attacked for being playing outside of her lane. I think it was very unique to Hillary Clinton. And the academic research is pretty clear that women uh, win at the same rates as men do, all things being equal, meaning they're, they're in competitive districts, they have equal money. Um, you, know, it, you know, it used to be that women were often kind of put up as sacrificial lambs in districts that were unwinnable. And so, you know, we thought, oh, women don't, you know, don't win, people don't vote for women, but when women are running in districts that are competitive in partisan terms, they win at the same rates as men. But not that, that's that big top sure. job. Yeah. I mean, I interviewed Helen Clark at the weekend, who used to be New Zealand Prime Minister and head of the UNDP, and she tried to become Secretary General of the UN, and we all thought she was not exactly a shoo-in, but we thought this is their moment to elect a woman, or there was a woman from Eastern Europe who could have got it too. We thought it was obvious she was beaten. 
by a man, and she talked about the opaque nature of the voting. She was beaten by politics. Uh, the Americans wouldn't have her because they can't stand what New Zealand has done with a range of foreign policy things. But she, was, she said she met her first glass ceiling. She's been a remarkable contributor. Her first glass ceiling at the UN, and she was really antsy about it, actually. I was quite struck by it. But that was that ultimate, you know? It's one of the big, big jobs. And Nancy Pelosi does very well. But we're all looking on, I think, as women and men, and thinking, yeah, but <laughs> that's not the big one. Uh, I'm opti- I am optimistic. I think that she was un- a unique candidate in both positive and negative terms, and many of the things that people thought about her around her gender were unique to her. But if you look at, you know, be- below the level of president, we have really compelling evidence. Jennifer Lawless, uh, who was one of Simon's students uh, at Stanford at, the, at American University, has done the definitive work on this, and the issue, the lack of representation for women in office in the U.S. is a supply problem. It's people not running. It's women not running. It is not, once women run, again, if they're competitive on money, competitive districts, they win at the same rates as, as men. Part of it is that partisanship trumps everything. And um, the U.S. has become so polarized in partisan terms. It is there, if you look, for example, at something like ticket splitting, so people voting, say, for top of the ticket for a Democrat and you know, down the ticket for a Republican, there used to be a fair amount of ticket splitting in the U.S. There's almost no ticket splitting now. It's straight down, down the ballot, and there are very few people in, in the middle. And frankly, that just really trumps gender. So tell, just tell us, we, all, we hear this all the time, but, I mean, do you have Republican friends anymore? Did you ever? I want to know what it's like for people personally, because people do tell us this. I don't know whether it's got that much worse or I what. have acquaintances who are Republicans. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I mean, the, the, there's a book called The Big Sort by Tim Bishop that's very, uh, very important. It talks about how people sort themselves in America, and more and more people are choosing to live near people who are like them. There was a poll by Pew that said people would be more upset if someone married someone of a different party than a different race. Really? So why, big question I know, but I'd like, why do you think as a pollster who's, who's really tried to meet, if I can read about you, understand temperament and sensibility and subtle shifts, why is this so acute right now? Which aspect? The, 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 the division, the, the notion, oh, right, okay. the division. Well, it goes back to what I know on Twitter you were talking about before I came here. Um, is it goes back a lot to gerrymandering, mm-hmm. which is to say that as districts have become less and less competitive, members of Congress have, have become more ideologically polarized uh, because they don't need to speak to the middle. If you're you know, winning with 60 70% of the vote in you a Republican district, anybody. you don't have to persuade anybody. Mm-hmm. And, and that's true on, on both sides. Um, and certainly with the concentration of Democrats in cities and Republicans in rural areas, is a geographic bent to it as well. And so over time, gerrymandering, which, um, you know, obviously the Republicans in, in the mid-90s really sort of started to focus on gerrymandering and, and figuring out how to draw these districts in ways that were favorable to them. But after 2010, when they took over a number of states that had had either Democratic or at least mixed party uh, leadership, places like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, they, they drew those lines. I mean, Pennsylvania, well, they're, they're all terrible in terms of the, the lines. And so over t- the sort of polarization starts in the mid-90s. I date it to, to Newt Gingrich, but it, you know, sort of the majority of the majority 
majority, right? Because you only, you only bring things to the floor that you get a majority of the majority to vote on, which means you don't compromise. Um, and so that sort of governing philosophy, which I think you know now Mitch McConnell, who said, my job is going to be to stop anything that Barack Obama wants to do. So you know, it's 94, so then to 2010 with the Republican wave um, has, again, led to, to um, leadership or representation in Congress that requires very little accountability to voters and certainly there's absolutely no incentive to speak to the middle. Now, what's interesting is that um, there's some scholars like David King at Harvard who noted the, there's a, there had been a sort of gap between the ideological polarization in Congress and the voters, and that if you look at voters and you look at a range of policy issues, voters are sort of in the middle and leaders on their extremes, that has changed, right? It has now trickled down to voters, and that's why the question of gender is so complicated, because party is such a driver of almost everything that it's really hard to sort out some of these, like race and gender, it's a little harder to kind of sort out how, the, how those factors affect um, electoral success because the, because party has taken over everything. So the you know the typical role of women has been seen as outsiders learning to come come in um, and in a way country well from this is how I believe countries have to almost go through this experiment and see people try for this and then get more and more used to it. So you're suggesting that this level of ideological separation are you saying it's, that's going to make it harder for for women to actually work out how to, to reach a sufficient number? No, not necessarily. I mean, there's a really big partisan division on women in office. Most women elected in the US are elected as Democrats. And there's an organization called Emily's List, which is very, very yes, powerful. Yes, we have that here too. Yes, who, you know, which has been around since the 1980s, and its only sort of mission is to recruit pro-choice Democratic women to run for office. And it's an amazing uh, institution, and what it's done in terms of the money it's raised for women candidates, but they do way more than money. They train candidates. I mean, I work on, I'm currently working on a bunch of campaigns for women running for Congress because everybody and their mother wants to run for Congress right now in the US. So I, we're inundated with people, really women, calling me and saying they want to run for Congress. Um, and they are getting institutional support from those well, lists. They're writing press releases for them. They're helping with website content. I mean, they're helping all these women sort of get off, get off the ground. And so um, you have this, it's not just because of Emily's List, there's a lot of reasons for it, but it's much harder to be successful as a Republican woman. There's only one woman in leadership um, on the Republican side, Kathy McMorris Rogers. There's no other women in leadership. There, are, there were no women uh, crafting the secret health care bill uh, in the Republican Senate until there was such an outcry. It was 13 men that they put a couple women on whatever the secret committee is that's going to change one-fifth of the U.S. economy. Um, so I, absolutely women are successful in this uh, environment, but they're much more likely to be successful as Democrats. Let me ask you, this is a bit of a difficult question because I've been reading about Hillary is writing a, a, a memoir and so on, and is, is there anything she could say now that would improve the lot of further Democrat women? Uh, she's certainly getting pummeled at the moment. Sure. I don't know. I, 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 think it, I think when she blames everything on sexism, it is unhelpful because... I, I mean, I voted for her. <laughs> I was working for her. Um, I wanted her to win. But you have to be you know, blind to not see the problems of her as a candidate and her campaign. And so every time she takes something and says it's sexism, I think it actually hurts women. Because if everything's sexism, then you can't do anything, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's very difficult, you know, I think, for somebody to acknowledge that they were very problematic as a candidate. I mean, sure. so I don't blame her for not wanting to talk about her limitations. Uh, and the campaign was very, very poorly executed. 
Um, and so that's also something they've really, the Hillary for America people have really kind of closed ranks and no one's really talking about sort of, you know, what happened inside the campaign and I wasn't, you know, on the campaign. So there's many, many reasons why she lost, but I think when Hillary Clinton blames everything on sexism, um, does, I think that does, makes it harder. Is she doing that, is she? I, a, a lot, yeah. Huh? I mean, in the last few weeks, I mean, you know, it was a Comey, I mean, it wasn't, I don't know if it was Comey, I can't remember what it was, but. Comey, she does blame. Comey was sexism, email was, email was sexism, like, you know, you, she lied about the email in the first press conference, and then she did not um, fully give them over to the Justice Department. And I mean, right, some of this is self-inflicted, and so I don't think it helps women running if you blame every self-inflicted woman on sexism. And have you examples of, of women who do take the risk, because it's a risk, obviously, of saying, look, I stuffed up in these key areas. I mean, our Julia Gillard, who was our first Prime Minister, she had this great line, sexism isn't, doesn't explain everything, it doesn't explain nothing, whatever the phrase is similar. So she, she so I mean, is it worth taking the risk of acknowledging your own shortcomings, which is a big thing. For, women have, do, have been doing that and it's allegedly been a problem. Well, I don't think she has to do anything right now, right? She's a private citizen. She could do whatever she wants. But, and I'm not really speaking about gender here, but there's, there are, are really clear examples of people who've had to get up and acknowledge their shortcomings in order to open the door for them to be successful. Certainly, uh, Bill Clinton you know, got up and apologized to the world. But there's other examples. Rahm Emanuel, who's the mayor of Chicago, um, you know, sp spent his first term alienating a lot of people. And finally, he ran an ad during his campaign where he said, I'm sorry, I was such a jerk. I hear you. Uh, I'm going to listen more. Um, and I'm sure it was not easy to make that ad. So that's not necessarily particular to men or women. But there are, uh, again, I think Hillary Clinton's a special case. And she's certainly under no obligation now to explain herself to anybody. I don't think. I don't think she should feel like she has to do that. But there are lots of instances in politics where politicians have to acknowledge mistakes and missteps and, and course correction. And I think that's fine. And you, your view, before I call for questions, your view is it that, in fact, women are learning a lot about this political process and the business of standing publicly and garnering support, and you can see quite a good era coming in terms of women being happy to put their hands up. Well, yes and no. I mean, we still have, in the U.S., we still have dramatic underrepresentation of women in, in Congress. Um, and so... It's, I think it's 19% is, is female in Congress, so it's still it's pretty dramatic. Um, the problem is that, that women, many women don't want to run, and so, and for lots of reasons, and they tend to run later in life because it's harder to run when, like you say, you have children. Um, so there's a whole thing, a lot of women don't think they're qualified. Um, there's a really, again, going back to Jennifer Lawless's research, she talks about um, political ambition and women, you know, I mean, I, I've said this a bunch of times in different contexts, but I have never met a 35-year-old lawyer who's a man who told me I'm not qualified, who may have done nothing but, you know, bankruptcy cases or something. And then I'll talk to women who've been in the nonprofit sector and community activists, and they're like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm qualified. And I say, I don't ever, ever want to ever hear you say that to me ever again. <laughs> I've said that. <laughs> so, um, so I think that the issue is, you know, there's a really big issue around women not running. Um, I would also say that the Democratic caucus in the House of Representatives is now majority female and minority. It is minority white men. So you really have to look at partisan terms. Um, you know, the, the party, um, certainly last year, with, with Nancy Pelosi as the minority leader and Debbie Washman Schultz at the DNC, um, you know, was sort of run by the, the DCCC, which is the Democratic House campaign that was run by a woman, House Majority PAC, which was the super PAC that does house races run by a woman. Um, and so a lot of the parties run by women, the Democratic Party. So um, 
women are still underrepresented, there's still sexism, but if you're a Democrat, there's a lot of institutional support to run when, when you're a woman, and there's been a lot of success. And in the Senate, what's the, what's the uh, numbers? Well, the Senate is harder, but um, just simply because, um, you know, the, there's a pipeline to running. Mm -hmm. Not everyone is an Elizabeth Warren who goes from being a professor to be in the Senate, right? So if you think about the pipeline to run, you know, you've got to work your way up. Usually it's much more likely to work your way up from state legislature to Congress to, to Senate. So as the, if the pipeline becomes more populated, um, I would actually say where the real dearth of representation right now is um, in governors, in, in gubernatorial. Right. Yeah, I think there's like two women in the entire country. Are, is that right? Yeah, now there's a lot of women running for governor, including a couple people I'm working for, uh, running for governor uh, this year, uh, or for 2018, and in very competitive states, Michigan, uh, you know, New Mexico, um, a bunch of different places, and so in Minnesota. So I think we're going to see a number of women um, in governor's mansions after 2018. And that's a very could be a very important tipping point, couldn't it? Because it's an immense sort of experience and, and status gain. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the people who do best running for president usually come yep. out of, you know, governor's mansions, but also even more important is, again, going back to Simon's comments about gerrymandering is that after the 2020 census, they'll be redistricting again. Uh, and so for Democrats to win, I mean, it's not a gender issue, but for Democrats mm -hmm. to win these in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania that have really, are really, really, really badly uh, gerrymandered, obviously winning those, um, Winning those state houses means better lines. Better lines mean more competitive races, more opportunities for women to run and win. Now I'm going to throw. I'm going to hand over the uh, our one mic. And if you'd like to, if you'd like to ask a question, if you could stand and state your name, please, and make it a minute, a question, preferably rather than a statement. Hi, thanks. Um, Elizabeth is my name. I'm uh, American Australian. Are there a few names of uh, women who are coming up through the pipeline who we might want to keep an eye on over the next? five or 10 years or so? Definitely. Um, certainly, you know, it, people who are already in elective office in the Senate, Kristen Gildebrand, um, Amy Klobuchar, both of whom the names have been bandied about in terms of running for president, um, but they are both, you know, brilliant um, and focused. I mean, Gildebrand very focused on issues of women in the military and so, men, you know, she has a broader portfolio, but very focused on issues affecting, affecting women, pay equity. I think she's the co-sponsor of the Equal Pay Act in, in the Senate. Um, and yeah, Elizabeth Warren is older, but she's incredibly powerful in, in the Senate. Uh, in the House, there's a lot of interesting women. Michelle Lujan Grisham, who's one of my clients, is running for governor of New Mexico. Um, there's a woman named Gretchen Whitmer running for, um, she was the head of the Democratic Party in Michigan, is running for governor in, in Michigan. And then there's some other people from the state legislature. So Stacey Abrams from Georgia, uh, African-American woman, is the, the minority leader. I can't remember if it's the House or Senate. She's running for governor in Georgia, considered sort of a rising star. So um, there's a lot happening below the surface. There's a lot of really interesting women. A lot of them are you know, younger. They're in their 30s and in their 40s. Um, and, you know, according to, I should say, by the way, in terms of this whole pipeline issue, I was talking to the woman at Emily's List who sort of oversees recruitment of women to run, and she had eight, it was either 13 or 18,000 women sign up after the Women's March to train to run for office. They have candidate trainings. Now, not, it's not all Congress. It could be, you know, state legislature. It could be, you know, school board. But they are inundated with women post-Women's March who want to run. And I'm working for a couple people right now who told me they decided to run after the, the Women's March. So I think we're going to see a record number of women uh, running this year. Hi, my name's Julia. I'm just wondering if there are any differences in the prospects for uh, Republican female candidates than from Democratic female candidates, or if the um, issues they face and their prospects for winning are the same? 
Well, I don't know what happens with Republicans as well as I know with Democrats, um, but they seem to have a really hard time recruiting uh, people to run. Um, and they have tried, not that successfully, they, they've appointed a couple of people or within the, the caucus in the House to be in charge of recruiting women to run, but there's no equivalent of Emily's list on the Republican side. I think there's like Susan B. Anthony something or other. There's like, I don't even know what they are. There's a couple groups that are supposed to help Republican women. Um, and I'm not really entirely sure why, um, aside from sexism <laughs> and traditional power structures among conservatives um, and women's roles and, and that sort of thing. I'm not entirely sure why uh, there aren't. But like I said, there's only one woman in leadership on the Republican side. And there's in the, in the Senate, there's, there, are no women, there, there are no women in leadership. I mean, it was when, when Democrats lost the majority um, in the Senate, I mean, there were women chairing the budget committees. And, you know, I mean, there were women, you know, senators chairing committees. And that all went away. So I don't exactly know why um, Republicans do such a poor job recruiting, um, but they do. And it's always um, really uh, obvious and is always sort of noted. Um, I'm sure you all saw the picture of the, you know, again, I mentioned the health care bill um, is all being sort of developed by men in, in the Senate. Are there any Republicans here? Maybe you can tell us what I don't know. I'm not, I, I don't work with Republicans, so I don't, I mean, don't really, and I, I, I'm sure there are women in the Republican Party who are Anna, frustrated and we've upset. We've got one here. Okay. Uh, good day there, Anna. Um, so we mentioned, we've spoken a lot about uh, the identity aspect of Clinton's campaign. Do you come across many voters who uh, sort of ignored that identity aspect of the, of the race and focus on the policies between the two candidates? And secondly, completely unrelatedly and very indulgently, um, why are Democrats, as a Democratic pollster, why are Democrats so bad at state-level politics? Um, well, so with the first, the first question, um, I think that um, this goes back to partisanship. I mean, obviously there were tremendous, there were and are tremendous differences between Trump and Clinton on policy. So uh, I can't, I'm not sure there's one thing that they, you know, at least when he was running for president now agreed on. He used to be a Democrat, so he used to be pro-choice and things like that. But for the purposes of running for president this time, he was a Republican. Um, but again, partisanship sort of drives everything. So, and I mean, partisanship is a sort of a, a lens through which people see candidates and they make assumptions. People assume Republicans are pro-life, they assume Democrats are pro-choice. I mean, people, it's a heuristic, it's a shortcut for people. And so those are applied to both uh, Trump and Clinton. I think the more interesting kind of matchup with Sanders and Clinton, and what's interesting in that respect is, um, rhetorically, there were huge differences um, between them, but in policy terms, there were very small differences uh, between them. There were actually very few differences on kind of core values. They were very, very similar records voting in the Senate. Um, and it was actually really difficult, as you probably, if you were observing the primary campaign for um, for Clinton to find ways to differentiate herself from Sanders on policy grounds, so they focused a lot on guns because that was the one kind of blaring area where he had had some votes that were considered, you know, not good votes on guns. And it's not that guns drive American politics, but it was the one area of kind of policy difference that they could sort of really identify. Now, rhetorically, there were very big differences. I mean, he was obviously a populist and, you know, a socialist, a uh, democratic socialist, and, you know, she was much more establishment. And so at least rhetorically, they seemed like there was a huge gulf between them, but in fact, there really, there really wasn't. Um, 
On the state level, I think there's a couple things going on. You know, one is there, I think there was a fair amount of complacency at the state level. Um, and um, Republicans got much more focused much earlier. Just like Republicans have done a great job for themselves on redistricting and sort of focused on it earlier, um, they also focused on state legislatures and um, winning legislature. And they have, there's groups called ALEC, and there's, there's a variety of other groups on the Republican side. There are super PACs that are really focused on state legislative seats, um, which are actually pretty easy seats to flip because it doesn't take very much money. I mean, you can, you can put $100,000 into a state legislative seat and flip a seat. Um, and in, in context of yesterday's race, which was $50 million, $100,000 isn't that much money. Um, and so Democrats have sort of come late, and the main um, institutions that have been focused on state legislatures have been lab labor unions who have been on the decline, um, d on the decline because of the decline in manufacturing, and so th the private sector unions have been losing membership and therefore dues and money. And when the recession hit, um, a lot there, were, there was a huge hit to unions because of the layoffs of public employees, teachers and, and state employees. And then layer on top of that, you know, the Republicans who took over completely in certain states like Wisconsin, for example, um, you know, passed laws gutting labor unions. And so I think labor union membership in Wisconsin declined about 40% after Scott Walker eliminated collective bargaining for public employees. So what you have is a Republican focus on state legislative races and the labor movement being heavily focused on it, but the labor movement kind of being gutted and hollowed out by both economic trends and then you know, years and years of Republican assault on, on workers' rights and organizing rights. Um, there does, there's sort of a renewed focus on state, state legislatures, and, and, and I think that there are, you'll see um, a much sort of greater focus on state legislative races. But, the, but let me just add one thing about state legislative races, and this goes back to ticket splitting. It is now getting to the point where even state legislative races are completely tied to the top of the ticket. So I was doing this analysis of, you know, I was writing surveys where I had to ask, who are you going to vote for for governor? Who are you going to vote for for Senate? Congress, state legislature. And I was like, you know, a, a respondent on the phone can't listen to that many questions on the vote. So I was like, what can substitute for... Um, you know, some of these, these different, you know, be a proxy. And it turned out vote for Congress was 0.9 correlated with vote for state legislative. So as I stopped asking the state legislative question and just used the generic congressional. So as this polarization has set in, it has trickled down. And now even, like I said, even state legislative races. Um, I've worked in, I, I do a lot of work in state legislative races where I have Democrats getting attacked for voting for, you know, being for Obamacare. <laughs> Not even in Congress, right? And it's just the generic attack on Democrats being launched against state legislative candidates. So um, I think you're going to see a lot more money go into state legislative races. I think the stakes are so high with redistricting after 2020 that, you know, and, and I, think I think that progressive, I would just say that the Koch brothers, who are, you know, billionaires who fund Republican super PACs, have been very focused on state legislative races. I worked in the Iowa Senate last cycle where we lost the majority. And they were sent, AFP, Americans for Prosperity, which is one of their groups, was sending mail against our candidates in July. We didn't have enough money to even start going into the mail until September. So by the time we got into the mail, there had been eight to 10 negative mail pieces against our candidates coming from AFP. Um, that's remarkable to have a super PAC working in state legislative races. And, I, and progressive donors are much more fickle than Republican or conservative donors. And I think you're gonna see progressive donors start stepping up and putting money into these state legislative races. I might, uh, I'll have to go shortly, but I just want to, and I might hand over to Simon. Um, a woman called Joan Williams has written this very, this was reviewed in last 
Weekend's Weekend Australian. Um, US academic and author Joan Williams, a new book called White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. And she says that it's important, ne what's next for Democrats? It's important to mobilise the base and make sure that young people vote next time. I think it's important to continue to reach out to communities of colour and Latinos, but we are not going to be able to govern effectively without the white working class. She's talking particularly about the Democrat Democrats. Now, do you think this, do you agree? Um, I do agree. Um, a white working class woman, though, to be clear, have been Republican leaning for a long time. It, it's not a new phenomenon. I remember writing about security moms in 2004 in the Kerry Bush race, right? So it's not a new phenomenon that white blue collar voters, including women, um, lean Republican. Um, what was unique about 2016 is they went heavily Republican. I believe Trump got about 70% of white blue collar men and about 10 points lower, maybe 15 points lower with white blue collar women, but still won them pretty easily. Um, I think that the opportunity, so, so I think, you know, you have to look at what ties these different groups together. And there are a lot of really, um, there's a lot of economic challenges that African-American women face and white working class women face around health care costs and a whole range of other issues. And because Democrats really didn't have much of an economic message in 2016, and, and certainly Obama didn't have really much of an economic message besides continue the progress, um, you know, I think that a lot of white working class women felt like they weren't spoken to, that the things that worried them day to day weren't, the Democrats didn't understand them. And so I don't think it's hard. I think especially in the context of this Republican bill, which is gonna go up for a vote pretty soon, which is gonna kind of, you know, gut health care. Um, you know, women are the health care managers and homes, they're the ones who know about the doctor's appointments, about the co-pays. I mean, this is, and, and there's no reason why that's unique to Democratic base voters or, right? So I think that, you know, figuring out how to talk to these kind of daily economic concerns that women have, regardless of race, um, and uh, will be, is like essential, right, to, to winning a majority. I just don't see how you win a majority without it. Weekend uh, thing uh, that we went to the, the, the Crawford School, trying to look at really what's behind populism. In fact, the thesis was that cultural anxiety was playing a major role, possibly m more than the perceived globalisation and even economic disadvantage. That a lot of the people in Australia, and in fact, it was even analysed in the US, who were voting for populist or surprising in surprising ways. Um, they weren't voting for parties of more redistribution, this is in Australia. They were actually right-of-centre people, very anxious, who were often um, not especially challenged economically. That this has grown, the idea that there's all massive economic disadvantage. Is it really right? Is there something more challenging in its own way, cultural anxiety? Well, I think that there's, there's some debate about how, what, what role the economy played in economic anxiety versus xenophobia, anti-immigration, feeling under siege by you know, people of different colors coming to this country. And I just read somewhere last week that there's some academic analysis. It wasn't the economy, it was immigration. I think it's really hard to disentangle. You know, those two, I think they're, they're linked together. I think people's economic anxieties about their jobs are linked to immigrants coming in allegedly and taking their jobs. And so I think trying to disentangle those two things is really hard, and I don't think we necessarily have to. I don't think Democrats are ever going to be the party, the anti-immigration party. So if what's driving some white working class women is immigration, 
um, or feeling under siege culturally, then we probably won't ever win them. But that, that's just never going to happen. If you look at wh which populations are growing in the U.S. and the base of the Democratic Party, it is a racially and ethnically diverse party. Uh, and I really, you know, don't really un see how, if, if that's what was actually driving 100% of their vote choice, how Democrats would win those voters. Thank you, Geraldine. We might take another question or two from the audience. Well, I don't think either of the candidates were overly popular here. And um, you used to hear jokes sometimes like, uh, how come the United States can't produce two better people to vote for and all that kind of, kind of stuff? Um, I personally preferred Hillary, but um, I was sometimes not back on that, but um, how do you think Obama would have would have run against Trump? Trump? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, of course, he's become more popular now that Trump is president, and he left on as a pretty popular president. So my guess is he probably would have beaten Trump because probably African American turnout would have been wouldn't have gone down three percent, which is partly what killed her in places like Wisconsin. But I do think that it's very difficult for Democrats to win a third term. So, I mean, if you just took the fundamentals of the 2016 election and had no candidates, odds are a Republican would have won. Um, I think because Trump was so deeply unpopular and Clinton sort of, I mean, sorry, Obama was pretty popular, you know, by the end of his term. And like I said, I think African-American turnout, by the way, let me be clear, I'm not blaming African-Americans for <laughs> Clinton losing, um, you know, the decline of black turnout in certain cities like Philadelphia and Wisconsin was a contributor to her losing, but it's certainly not the only reason she lost. But my guess is you would have, and millennials, so a bunch of the groups that sort of dropped off um, for Clinton probably would have come out for Obama. But I mean, to be clear, like the, the odds were always somewhat against Clinton if you just took away, again, the candidates themselves. It would have been, it was very hard for, you know, Bush won after Reagan, but it's very rare to win kind of a third term in the same party. Um, my name is Rebecca. I'm just going back to the women in politics. So you're talking about the supply issue. So can you talk a little bit more about that? How can, how can we start at the early ages? and get the women and academics in, interested in political science and having leaders in political science, so early ages. Yeah. I think there's a, a few pieces to this. Um, you know, one is women need to be asked to run. Um, so I, I don't know, um, I think Jen's research says women need to be asked two or three times to run. It's funny, I was talking to a woman who's running and she had said that she'd been asked the previous cycle and didn't feel ready to do it yet. Um, and I said, oh, that's interesting. I've heard that a lot of women say no the first time they're asked. So, so they're asked to actually be recruiting. You can't just wait for people to, to run. Um, and then that, and, and the reason is because women believe they are less qualified than men do. Very few men who run think they're not qualified to run, and women are much more likely to think they're not qualified to run. So I think that that piece of it is really, really important. But the reality is, is that women tend to run a little bit later in life because of the unequal roles around raising children. And so until we have equity in um, how we take care of our families in the US, which it's gotten better, but it's by no means equal, it is hard for women to run. They often have to wait till later in life. And I, I'm working for a number of young men who are running, who have young children and who have partners who take care of the children. And they're always scheduling conference calls at like seven o'clock at night. 
And I'm like, I have kids. <laughs> I can't do conference calls at 7 o'clock at night. And I'm like, how can you do conference calls at 7 o'clock? You have kids. Oh, yes, your wife's taking care of those kids. Right? So, I mean, <laughs> right? So, um, you know, the reality is that I think kids makes it harder. And so, like I said, women are more likely to run when their kids are teenagers or older than when they're very young. Yes. Right. She, she, if you couldn't hear her, she said that men are often running with someone to support them at home and women are not, which is, yes, often the case. Not always, though, but yeah. Hi. Um, is there any countries internationally that you see that do that very well, um, be it structurally or culturally? They have something in place that sort of solves that lack of recruitment for women wanting to participate? And if so, is there something that the U.S. could take from those countries to implement to solve that problem? Well, I, I'd say a couple of things about that, and I am no expert on, um, on comparative politics, so um, take everything I say with a grain of salt. But my, my sense is that in parliamentary systems where parties create lists um, of candidates, there's more control over recruitment. Those are places where you can put women on the lists. Um, we recruit in a very different way. Um, we don't have lists. We have primaries, and you know, and so you know, you have to to win a primary. You have to you, know, you get no support except if you're a woman, you'll get support from Emily's list in a primary. But otherwise, you get no support in a primary from almost any institution. Um, generally speaking, people try to stay out of primaries. So my sense is that it, it's parliamentary systems where you again you have lists of candidates you can the party itself can put women um, on those lists um, and then you know then you're sort of in office but I don't I'm not really that much of an expert a lot of the women who are kind of world leaders many in like in Central America South America are were married to <laughs> um, to previous leaders and so I don't know that there's any great model out there um, but maybe Simon knows better than I'm since he's not I'm an ignorant American about the world okay. um, the, the Australian system right the and there is just more party control than in the American system. Um, so that does provide a vehicle. Um, no, you won't, no, but, but it's important to remember um, the Australian Parliament, uh, single member districts for the House, um, um, cl cl not, you wouldn't call them lists, but they're close to it for, 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 uh, for the Senate, uh, the Australian Senate, and, and that's a vehicle um, where often Precisely because there is more party line voting there, it, there's this inside the party debate about how many women to put on the ticket and where they go, and and it can it's sort of more driven top down by parties in Australia that have openly committed to trying to equal up, um, you know, set, setting targets for themselves uh, in in the national parliament at least, and, and and in some of the state parliaments as well. But it's a good point. Institutions matter. Yeah. Right, and I mean, I was thinking about Trudeau and half of his cabinet is uh, female, right? And I do think that that kind of, not that you have to have men to get women in all the time, but that is national and party leadership around bringing women to the leadership is, is pretty important. And also providing sort of role models, like states that have more women in elected office tend to have more women running. So you have a state like Washington, for example, has two women senators, had a woman governor, and I think their legislature is about half female. Um, New Hampshire had a woman, has two women um, senators, at one point had two women senators and a woman governor. And so in places where you already have women in leadership, 
those role models are really important for other women to run. And it's sort of interesting how many blue states like Massachusetts and Rhode Island in the U.S. have a no tradition of women in elected office. And it'd be, and it's really, it's really, really, even though these are kind of states that vote Democratic presidentially, there's, there's, there's many reasons why, but that's a piece of it is that there's just so few role models in those, in those states. We have more women in, in Western states. Women got the right to vote earlier in the West. I mean, there's just a lot in the West. The U.S. is more open, more libertarian. It's just different. The East is more conservative in a lot of ways. Hi, Anna. Um, uh, thank you for, uh, so much for coming in today and taking our questions. Uh, my name is Satan, and I'm a PhD student at the Gender and Cultural Studies Department. And my thesis is on uh, the first female military veterans to be elected to Congress. Um, and I've noticed that one of the most overrepresented groups in federal politics in the US are military veterans, numbering, having numbered in the thousands historically, but there have only been six female military veterans elected. Um, I mean, this goes back to your comment about uh, a lack of supply. Um, is there a push now that we're seeing the likes of Tammy Duckworth in the Senate and Johnny Ernst. Uh, is there a push for recruiting female military veterans to run? Yeah, I mean, the, well, I don't know about female, but there's certainly a push on the Democratic side to recruit um, veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan, and there's a record number running this year. And I've talked to one woman, at least, who is a vet from Afghanistan who I think is going to run in Texas. Um, but so there are some women in that group, but there's now there's vote vets um, and there's another group called like ugh, I can't remember what it is, but their their sole purpose is to, is to recruit veterans to, to run. I might I'm just going to totally speculate here. I don't know this. My guess is that now that combat roles have been opened up to women and there are more opportunities for women's leadership in the military, you may see more women um, coming out of the military running. I think a lot of you can obviously serve in many capacities, um, but just as a, putting on my crass political consultant hat for a minute, you know, we like talking about have, being an actual veteran with combat experience, right? And so as part of like a tough person who can, you know, get things done in Washington, kick ass and take names or whatever. Um, and so I, I, this, you know, it works sometimes, sometimes it doesn't work, but I think that as more, again, more sort of opportunity opens for, for women in the military, we may see more. I, I had the, the sad uh, opportunity to work against Martha McSally in um, uh, Arizona. Um, and so, because I, I did Gabrielle Gifford's polling, and then I, when her um, district director ran for her seat, I did his polling as well. And um, she's a tough one. <laughs> I think she's not going anywhere anytime soon out of that district. But she, but she had a great story. I mean, she wasn't just that she, she was the first woman to fly in combat, but she also sued Donald Rumsfeld for discrimination, for sex discrimination, because he... Um, tried to force them to wear headscarves when they left the base in Saudi Arabia and she wouldn't do it. And so here's a Republican woman who served in combat and sued Rumsfeld for sex discrimination. I mean, it's very hard to run against somebody with that kind of profile. Hi, this question may be a little different, but let's say Hillary got in, what would she have done about US car manufacturers and manufacturer manufacturing going overseas compared to Trump? Um, I have no idea. Um, I mean, you know, Obama saved the car industry, the auto industry in the U.S., um, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. 
Hi, um, my name is Marla Minow. Nice to see also, you again. hello. <laughs> Thanks for finally getting here. Um, so, I'm a member of Democrats Abroad, and question for you would be: gearing up for the 2018 election, if you had two things that we should be doing, what would you suggest? To help elect women, or to just women Democrats mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. Congress to help take well, over Congress? Well, I hate to say this, but giving money. Um, and it doesn't have to be a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, the, the amount of money that's being raised in small dollars, um, which was sort of pioneered really by Howard Dean, if you think about it, um, but has also fueled Sanders, fueled Warren. Um, small dollars, I, I believe this, what's gonna save the Democratic Party in the face of unions declining will be small dollar donations. And you know, Simon made the point that institutions don't get really involved in primaries. And if, if you can, if a woman can win a primary in a competitive district, then everyone's gonna come in and help her. The party's gonna come in, the super PACs are come in, but getting to be the party's nominee, right? And so taking a look and look at the districts that are on the DCCC's list um, of 70 competitive districts and looking at the women who are running in those primaries, they are, you know, and they're being asked to raise, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars in their first quarter, which is a lot of money to raise, especially when you, some people are running in districts that are not wealthy districts. They don't have a network of, you know, financiers to, to give them money. So, I mean, I hate to say give money because I hate the role of money in politics in the U.S., but helping women win primaries in these competitive races would do a lot towards increasing women's representation in Congress. I want to ask about that real quickly. Um, can you just tell us quickly, like when you're a, con a consultant and you're looking at a woman, right, and you've got a it, party is constant in a primary contest. It's a bunch of Democrats, but your clients are women running against male Democrats. What, what sort of messaging and, and what, how, does, how do you approach that um, as a general matter, perhaps, or how generic is it? Your answer could well be, well, it's all different, or but versus when you've got a male client in, in the same situation? It's a really interesting question, and it's something that people spend a lot of time thinking about. I can't tell you how many times I've either worked for a woman and they say, all right, well, she's going to get the woman's vote, or I've worked for a man, because I've certainly worked for men running against women, where they say, oh, she's going to get the women's vote. But there's, there's, there's no correlation between gender and voting in primaries. In other words, if you were to put together uh, a model and you put gender in the model, it will not predict voting for a woman or a man. And I did this, I put together all these surveys from primaries across all these races, and the predictors of voting for a woman were race, so African Americans are more likely to vote for women, being college educated, and being liberal. And so um, those, those were the, the drivers, so there's, there's an ideological commitment for to voting for women, and men can have that commitment, and especially men who vote in Democratic primaries are really liberal. <laughs> so, right, and so that is really the driver. And so I always say to my candidates, if it's a woman, I'm like, please don't count on that. You know, <laughs> don't don't think you're going to win this because the majority of Democratic primary voters are female. If it's a high minority district, it could be 60% female. Um, if it's more diverse, you know, more diverse racially or ethnically, it might be about 55% female, but the, the vast majority of people who vote in Democratic primaries are women. Um, so, and if it's a man, I say, okay, well, we can still beat her, even though <laughs> she's, got, she's a woman and there's a lot of women voting in, in the primary. So um, that's sort of a myth that st I still hear, I still hear it all the time. I'm like, what do you, I don't, you understand? You've, anyway, um, 
I think you have to be care you have to it's when I work for people if you're a woman if I work for a woman we, it's not so much that we talk about running as a woman but we do talk I do talk to them a little bit differently about things this whole question of being qualified I do think there's a higher bar for women and um, it's sort of and how you present yourself can be really fraught because you can't be I always call it the woman in a suit with a plan um, if, you know because that feels very distant from voters doesn't feel like they understand their life or on the other hand you can't just be gauzy and soft and run around with babies um, people say well how are you gonna go to you know Washington and keep up with the big boys in Washington and I've heard people say that in focus groups about some people I've worked for who have sort of come from less traditional more, you know, woman-y, whatever you want, women-like professions, they'll say, oh, well, how is she going to compete with men there? Is she doing tough enough? So how you find that kind of middle ground is really hard. When I worked for Gabrielle Giffords, if you look at the ads from her first two races in 2006 and 8, she was out, like, fixing tires because her dad had owned a tire company, and she was riding a horse, and she has, like, a big belt buckle on and, like, draws a line in the sand with her cowboy boot and says, you're not going to cross this line and cut Social Security and Medicare, like, out in the desert. Um, and then in 2010, her, she, she plummeted like all Democrats did. And we were stunned because she was so popular. And she still is so popular. And um, we did focus groups and we changed our ads and she's wearing business casual, walking down a, you know, walking down a corridor with writing notes and talking and looking like she's getting things done, right? And she's the same person, right? But we kind of changed and, you know, because they were like, what's she been doing there, you know? What's going on? And so you, I don't think you really have to, I've never had that conversation with a man about like, you know, what suit you should wear and if you should, you know, I, actually that's not totally true. I worked for one man who was a self-funder um, and self-funders are very hard to work for um, because they're usually very successful people in business who f find out that it doesn't translate into being successful in politics. Um, and the, the ad maker filmed him in front of like a, an ornate sort of Venetian um, mantle talking about the minimum wage in a suit, and I was like, "Can we?" I was like, "Can we put him in a polo shirt, please?" You know, he is so rich. Let's put him in a polo shirt. But that was not. So that wasn't about gender. That was about like not, you know, being so rich and uh, you know, conveying that you might understand what people people go through. Um, yeah, uh, actually, kind of follows on from what you're saying. Um, we're talking about a binary context of male and female, but obviously these days we've got LGBTQI and we keep adding initials. I think the latest one I've heard of is non-binary, where you're, depending which day you are, you're somewhere on the spectrum. So how do you approach that, obviously? You're having enough trouble with a binary situation when you've got a muttering of the waters like this and those people who obviously have very strong agenda in terms of same-sex marriage and gender ambiguity and are probably more likely to to, to go out and vote or to put a proposition on, on the ballot and et cetera, make themselves kind of more known. Um, but the people who are less likely to vote, the old school, are probably just more confused by the situation. So just wondering how that seems to be playing itself out and do you see any sort of big roadblocks occurring because of that where you might have a backlash because, you know, on the Democratic side you might have more of this happening and it just entrenches positions on both sides then? Well, I mean, there are more and more gay candidates running and more and more openly gay people elected and at every level, not just Congress, but, you know, state, local. Um, and uh, I think that as um, there has been acceptance culturally in the U.S. Um, around certainly marriage equality, that that has changed the equation for people who are out running for office. Um, I, 
in my experience, and I've, I've had, I've worked for gay candidates who've won, is we, we rerun completely conventional, predictable campaigns. <laughs> They're just not that different, um, to be honest with you, um, than other campaigns. And again, here's a place where partisanship just really trumps almost everything else in a general election um, context. In a primary, you know, I think that you, there could be, you know, in primaries, there are so few ideological differences among the candidates that the race is really driven by their story and who they are and what their values are and what they would do. And you know, everyone's gonna be pro-choice, everyone's gonna be pro-marriage equality, everyone's gonna be for you know, preserving Obamacare, right? There's gonna be no difference, very rarely. Um, and so you know, if I was working for someone who was gay, I would say, tell me some story where you overcame adversity you know, that you could, that could help you connect with people and that might be a story of coming out or something like that. And that would be totally fine in a democratic primary. Um, but it also could be a story of some decision point in their life where something happened that had nothing to do with the fact that they were gay. Um, and we would just test all of that in surveys and focus groups and see what pops. Um, it's not, we don't make it up. We, we, I spend a lot of time, like I put them on the therapy couch and say, tell me your life story. And then we go and we put it all in front of people and say, what part of this is kind of most compelling to you? Um, so I'm pretty agnostic, honestly, about kind of what, you know, what to, to, to tell people about candidates. I, and, I, and I'm often wrong about what I think is going to be compelling to people. Um, sometimes I think things are like, I'm like, nah, that's never, no one's going to care that you were in the Peace Corps. And then it becomes like the most important, that really happened. And then it becomes like the most important thing. And, and every ad has a, a grainy black and white picture of my candidate in the Peace Corps. Um, who knew? <laughs> so. Well, whoever's got the microphone gets to ask the last question. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Charlotte. So obviously the crux of the conversation we've had today has been about the role that sexism has played in Hillary Clinton's loss. Um, but another one that, you know, I'd mostly say men put it down to is this idea of nepotism. Um, so how much longer do you think the notion of nepotism will have an effect on the way not just candidates are perceived, but also the candidates that are coming through to office as well? Uh, by nepotism, you mean what exactly? Like the name Clinton, for example, or preferential treatment based on, you know, the the way you've been raised or the sure. names you have attributed to you, essentially, the backing that you've received. Uh, well, I don't think she had an issue with nepotism. Mean, I mean, maybe when she ran for Senate, but I think by the time she was successfully Secretary of State, I don't think anyone sort of thought she had that role because of nepotism. And I don't think anybody, I mean, in the, all the focus groups I did on Clinton, nobody had the slightest doubt that she was qualified to run for president. But I would actually say that mentors matter a lot. And I know in the business world, if women have men who are more senior who mentor and bring them up, those kinds of companies, you have a lot more women in senior leadership. And my guess is the same thing is true you know, in politics. I mean, how many people's district director or chief of staff end up running for their seats, right? There's a lot of people in Congress who work for somebody else in Congress. And so I'm just sort of speculating here, but I would, I would imagine that the more that women are sort of mentored and helped brought up by men in leadership in, in politics, that that helps them. And that's not ne necessarily nepotism, but so much about being recruited and raising money and winning is about relationships and what relationships you're embedded in. And if you're in politically relevant relationships, you are much more likely to be successful. And because historically women have come from less traditional occupations to run for Congress, they are less embedded in those relationships. That's changing. Um, it, it, more and more women are coming from the more, you know, from you know, lawyers and you know, coming from more traditional places, but that has not been true in the past. And so they've been at a disadvantage because they're not like embedded in those, in those networks. Um, and I'm afraid we'll have to cut it off there. Um, I want to thank Anna um, and, and thank you all for coming out tonight as well. Also, I want to thank Sydney Ideas uh, for helping us uh, with, with tonight's event. 
And, um, and you know, the United States Study Centre that I run, we're, we're, we're hosting uh, Anna uh, for a series of events and, and um, her new partner, Dana uh, Milbank from the Washington Post, um, they're, in, they're in the country uh, for a while. And, 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 uh, I wanna, and I want you to look at the audience now as I remind them. So Anna will be on Q&A on Monday night. Oh. Making me very scared about this because every time, every time it comes, like people go, "Ooh!" I'm like, "What?" So that was just more for Anne. Thank you very much for confirming that for me. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.